Well, I hope your mind is in fast mode this morning. I heard many years ago when I was uh, doing things on the radio and recording for the radio and all, and I used to record my own things with a sound program, and uh, you could you could compress things and drag things out, and you could really tweak all kinds of things. And what I what I learned was is that we humans have the ability to understand at a much faster rate than what conversation is usually delivered at. So I'll warn you, I have a long message this morning, and so I'm just going to go through this real quick because I know that you can understand everything and what I'm saying. So I'm going to just go and raise your hand if you can't keep up, maybe. No, I'll be reasonable. Well, ish. We are in the fourth part of a seven-part series, which is unusual, as you know, if you've been around here for a while. Uh, but today... Uh, we are addressing the issue of, is Christianity too narrow? And the first thing that I have to clarify is, what does that question even mean? One might understand it as asking if the doctrines of the Christian faith are too confining, meaning that they infringe too much on our personal freedoms. But that aspect of the question more often comes from other Christians about other Christian denominations or sects. But that's not what the question is as it's presented this morning from the folks at exploringgod.com, which I've explained that in past weeks, which is why we're doing this. This morning we are talking about what non-Christians mention pretty much critically as the exclusivity of Christianity. And that's a real point of contention. Because when it's used the way it's used, it's meant as the supreme reason for their having written off Christianity, protesting that it claims to be the one and only true faith. My first comment is that they are correct in their assertion. Christianity does in fact declare that it is the one and only way to heaven. And we need to learn to appreciate how utterly offensive, arrogant, and exclusive or narrow that sounds. Yet an interesting observation I note is that many of the same people who take great offense at the supposed narrowness of Christianity have little or nothing to say about Islam, which not only believes that Islam is the one and only true religion, but that all others who do not agree should be put to death. And for the record, since September 11th of 2001, the world has been successfully being brainwashed in thinking that it's only radical Muslims who believe in perpetrating all the violence against those who believe differently. The intended implication of that is that we shouldn't think of them as even being real Muslims. But... I tell you by personal study, not by Internet or Google or Facebook or Twitter or anything else, but my, my own reading of the Quran, that as a matter of Islamic dogma, it is written in the book of in the Quran that any and all who do not worship the God of Islam should be destroyed and meaning by them. That is what jihad is all about. Islam warns, become a Muslim or die now. That's not extremist. That is 
what Islam teaches through the Quran. Surah 5 and Surah 9, just to mention two of many, many references that are quite explicit to this effect in the Quran. This is nothing like Christianity, which appropriately warns those who do not agree with the Bible's plan of salvation of what awaits them when they die or the God of heaven returns, whichever comes first. But see, that warning, that's a loving thing to do. So again, is Christianity too narrow? Well, if one means does Christianity teach that the Bible is different from all other holy books because it alone contains the authoritative truth in all that it speaks, then it's not unfair to say that it is, in fact, narrow. But too narrow? How narrow is too narrow when eternal danger lurks? Barbara and I lived in the Pacific Northwest, actually Washington State, between Seattle and Tacoma. And uh, I was much younger in those days. And so uh, Mount Rainier was a looming geographical figure there that uh, really can't be missed. Hello, Mount Rainier. Well, it can be missed, I guess. This is what happens when we get a big fog. Thank you, Mount Rainier. Okay. Mount Rainier, this is Mount Rainier, by the way, 14,410 feet to the summit, which is right on the opposite side of that. It's called Columbia Crest. This is Gibraltar. That big outcrop is called Gibraltar. And I mention this because the base camp, Camp Muir, at 10,000 feet, is right here. You stay there until midnight, and then you are the route that we took. There's zillions of, not zillions, there's a lot of routes you can go. We decided to take a technical route. I was with some very experienced mountain climbers. And this is, this was Gibraltar, part of it, that you saw. And this is called the Gibraltar Chute. Now, what you can't appreciate is both the, maybe you can appreciate the steepness of this. And also, when you look down there, we're talking like you're not stopping for thousands of feet. Now, I don't know, this obviously isn't my team because this is daytime. You make this at midnight with just little lights on your head. This is the narrow way through the Gibraltar Chute. And as you can see over here, this little bitty path is free, at least it was for us, of snow, which is, but even that is nothing but scree rock, what's called scree. And it's just big kind of pieces of rock where you step on it and the rock just moves kind of out from under your feet. All right. Now, this way is narrow. But just because a way is narrow doesn't mean that it isn't safe-ish or that it isn't life-enhancing or that it isn't available to all. Another complaint regarding the narrowness of Christianity is if there is a God, he can't be contained in any one belief system. You may have even seen the bumper sticker, which I still see occasionally, that says, God is too big to fit into one religion. Okay. Who says? <laughs> That's just a silly statement. So let's again try to clarify the question, is Christianity too narrow? Again, if one means... Does Christianity teach that it alone 
contains the one and only plan for a person's eternal destiny, then yes, it is narrow. But too narrow? If one means that the Bible is the final authority by which all other truth claims are judged, then yes, it is narrow. But too narrow? If one means does Christianity teach that there is no truth to be found in any other religions, writings, or holy books, then, yes, Christianity is too narrow. But Christianity does not teach there is no truth to be found elsewhere. It only teaches that if truth is found elsewhere, it is only true if it is not contradicted in the teachings of the Bible, which is to say, as you have probably heard, All truth is God's truth. We can find examples of all kinds of good things and and thoughts that are worth pondering in all kinds of books outside the Bible. I think of C.S. Lewis or J.J.J.R.R., whatever his name is, Tolkien, Colson, Tim Keller, but those are all Christians. But what about Confucius? Well, we're all familiar with what Jesus said in the Golden Rule, right? Uh, Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Do you know that Confucius said, do not do unto others as you would not want them to do unto you? It's even called the reverse golden rule. Another iteration that I saw this on Friday's prayer loop is tweet others as you would want them to tweet you. That's called contextualization. Even the Quran contains truth, even bearing witness to the fact that the Bible we have today is the uncorrupted word of God. You heard that right. You say, wait a minute. Islam doesn't teach that or believe Muslims don't believe that. I know. Most Muslims don't know what's in their Quran any more than most Christians don't know what's in their Bible. So truth can be found in many, many, many places. But if it's true it will be confirmed or at least not contradicted by the inspired, infallible, and errant authoritative word of God. So if I may frame the question, because we have to narrow it down to the confines of what we have to work with, the real question this morning is, does the Bible really teach that there is only one road that leads to heaven and all other roads are wrong? Does the Bible teach that the God of the Bible is the one and only true God. If the answer to these are yes, then the inescapable logical extension of this is that all other religions are in fact wrong. Since Christianity demands that it is only people who have received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and that it is the only faith that can save a person from a place called hell, and since the Bible is the only holy book that contains unmitigated truth, and that many who are very devout in the practice of the myriad of religions worldwide will not go to heaven when they die, then certainly Christianity, if not narrow, is exclusive, meaning exclusionary. This morning I want to keep these premises in our minds and examine them by scripture and plain reason to quote Martin Luther, the Catholic monk who was responsible for the Protestant Reformation when he was standing before the Diet of Wormer. That's German for the Diet of Worms. It's not a nutritional plan. 
<coughs> Diet is a formal official meeting, and worms is the German word for worm. We translate worms, which again is not worms, but it's the name of the city. Demanding that Luther recant his criticisms of the church, Luther replied, unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, my conscience is captive to the word of God. And you see, the Bible is never against reason, for in fact, it has been authored by the God of all reason, who is by definition reasonable. And God even condescends to our level, saying through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 1, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. While Christians are increasingly becoming the outcasts of the world and we are often viewed as people of lower than normal intellect, when one considers that view from where such accusations originate, we need not be intimidated for they carry about the same weight and thought as the junior high clown in science class taking exception to the theory of relativity by Dr. Einstein. The Bible tells us, now we, referring to we Christians, we who believe, we have put our faith in Christ alone, have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. You see, it might be really helpful for us if we can remember that a person who does not have the Holy Spirit, which means they have not given their life to Jesus Christ, does not have the Holy Spirit in him and therefore cannot discern what is spiritually discerned. So you see, nothing is more offensive to those who are perishing without Jesus than the claim that the Bible is God's infallible word and that Jesus really is God who came in the flesh, that Christianity is the only road to heaven and that all other religions are wrong. Now, why might this be infuriating? And I don't mean from a human standpoint even in common uh, sense about dogma and doctrine and how polarizing those things can be. I mean from a spiritual standpoint. If the Bible is right in all that it teaches, then Satan, who is a real being, he's not a symbol, he's a real being who has been defeated once for all time by the cross of Christ. And understandably then, he hates the truth because he hates God, and therefore he hates God's people. And guess what? Satan knows the truth. The Bible even tells us that. In James chapter 2, he's talking to people who are claiming to be, if not Christians, certainly to be believing in the God of the universe or whatever in the one true God. And James says to them, you believe that God is one? In other words, you're clinging to this idea that you have this generic faith in this generic God and that's your security? He says, you do well. The demons also believe. That's sarcastic, by the way. Oh, big deal. The demons also believe and shudder. 
The domain of Satan believes firmly in God Almighty. He has no need of wasting his time, therefore, on the masses who do not know Jesus. He knows that they are hellbound going to a Christless eternity with him. So Satan's efforts are focused with fury on bringing confusion and chaos and turmoil to those who know and love the Lord because we are his greatest enemies on earth. And every time another person comes to saving faith in Jesus, Satan loses another battle. All right, as we proceed, four things, three in the form of questions, one statement. Question one, why would God make the way to heaven so difficult that so many throughout the ages then end up missing it? Number two, how can God, who is supposedly a loving God, send send to a Christless eternity all the billions of people through time who didn't believe in him. Number three, what about all those people who have never had the opportunity to even hear about Jesus? And then the statement that follows those those three questions, born out of those three questions, is this is why I cannot believe in the Christian God. Well, these questions are, I would call them the classic theological problems that people have with the Christian faith. To be sure, there are many other problems people have with the Christian faith along what I would call more practical lines, like, oh, it's church, you know, it's just full of hypocrites. Yeah, it is, which is exactly why we need to be here and why we need a Savior. You know, don't ever argue that one. Right? Just say, yeah, right. That's why I have Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And the other ones, if, well, if you Christians all believe the same Bible, how come there are so many different Christian churches or denominations or faiths or whatever you want to call it? Well, let's start with question one. Why would God make the way to heaven so difficult? And I would say, that the way that question is worded, I worded it that way, the very nature of the question reveals that the good news, that is the gospel, that is the message or the plan of God's salvation for mankind to get to heaven has never been properly understood by somebody making that statement. And the key there is properly understood. The distinct difference, you see, between Christianity and all other religions is that all other religions are man's attempt to get to God. In common, they all ask, what do I have to do in order to earn God's favor? Which is why all the religions of the world each have their own rituals, their own routines or protocols, their must-dos and their must-don'ts with a system of reward for doing the right things or for not doing the wrong things. But even in Christian rich nations, there is such a lack of clarity in my experience of the biblical plan of salvation that I know that even in this church, I am confident That if I were to sit down with you privately and say, so tell me, you're standing before God in that day, and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? I assure you, not a handful, but more, are going to tell me an answer that has some variety or some iteration that comes down to, 
Well, I've done the best I can. Well, I'm trying to do good things. I try intentionally not to do wrong things or bad things. I try deliberately not to hurt anyone. All of which are saying, well, i got to earn my favor with God. So the only system of faith, though, in the world which has God coming down from heaven himself to fulfill the requirements for a man to get into heaven is the Christian faith. The Apostle Paul writing to the church at Ephesus, chapter 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that's not of yourself. It's the gift of God. Even your faith is not your faith. It's a gift. And it's not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Is Christianity too narrow? Not when you properly understand God's plan of salvation for mankind. In 2 Peter chapter 3, we read this, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The context for this verse is why God doesn't just return now and put it all to an end and put it all uh, to an end to all the wretchedness that's so prevalent and increasing in the world. The promise that's referred to is the promise of Jesus' return to usher in the kingdom of heaven. And it tells us that Jesus is patiently, deliberately delaying his return precisely because he doesn't want anyone to go to hell. But if you haven't believed before that great and terrible day of the Lord, as it's called in the scriptures, when he returns, it'll be too late for those who haven't believed. And so he tarries for the sake of those who do not yet know. That doesn't sound exclusive or too narrow to me. God the Father is perfect. And yes, he demands perfection from all those who will reside with him in his heaven. He demands sinless perfection. Now that's a redundancy. If something is perfect, there is no blemish, no stain, no inadequacy in it. But I say that to emphasize the fact, because our minds are always given to relative perfection or goodness well compared to my next door neighbor i am a saint (laughs) that's not what we're talking about we're talking about unsullied untainted true perfection the bible says in first peter one like the holy one who called you Be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, referring to the Old Testament system of, of the arduous you know, regimentation of the worship and sacrificial system to delay the wrath of God until Christ could come and take care of that once and for all. But rather you have been saved with the precious blood. Blood is of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, namely the blood of Jesus Christ. Titus 3 is categorical. It is not by works of righteousness we have done. I memorized it in a different 
translation long ago than what's up there, so I better just read it. He saved us because of his mercy and not because of any good things that we have done. God washed us by the power of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, giving us new birth and a fresh beginning. Why isn't it by good works? Because perfect works are needed, not just good works. And all of our good works and all of our best intentions and great efforts, the Bible says categorically, are as filthy rags before the Lord. Does that mean he doesn't desire us to do good things? Not at all. What it means is, is if that is what you are going to present to him to allow you into heaven, then they are as filthy rags because they are imperfect and therefore inadequate. The Bible tells us in Romans 3 that because of that imperfection, called sin, all have sinned, no exceptions, and therefore fall short of the glory of God. And we read further three chapters that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So no human being, no one born of Adam and Eve thereby coming into this world inherited by with their sin, are already sinners before we have ever done anything. And so no human being could ever live up to the standard of God's holiness of perfection. So the only one who could save mankind is God himself, which is why Jesus, who is fully God, chose to become human while being fully God, to come to our earth and live life in accordance with his own perfect demands of perfection. And this is why only God himself in Christ is qualified to be sacrificed for the sins of you and the sins of me. And to take your place and my place on that cross in sacrifice as our substitute taking upon himself the penalty of our sin which our holy God pronounces against all sin. If it was anyone less than God himself, the one dying would have his own sins to pay for. Talking about Jesus, the writer of Hebrews tells us that that's why it was necessary for us to have such a high priest referring to Jesus who is holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like the high priests of the Old Testament to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because this Jesus did once for all when he offered up himself. Because Jesus is God Almighty, he is sinless. And since it is sin that enables death to hold someone in the grave, remember the wages of sin is death. Jesus, being God, being sinless, rose from the dead. The wages of sin is death, the physical cessation of life, and it is also the spiritual death, which is isolation of the soul in a place specially prepared 
for the devil and his angels. We are told in Second Thessalonians that God will be dealing out retribution in that day to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of our of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in the saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Is Christianity too narrow or even exclusive? What does the Bible say about getting to heaven? John chapter 3, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever... That doesn't sound too exclusive. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. John 4, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. This was the story of Jesus with the woman at the well, hence the illusion or the metaphor of the water. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. John 12, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. Acts 2, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Acts 10, of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. And again, Romans 10, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. What happened to this notion of excluding some? Whoever, whosoever. And what becomes of the epithet concerning the God of the Bible, which is any number of versions of, well, I can't believe in a God who would send so many to hell. God gets blamed for so many things. Does God send anyone to hell? Or do people choose to go there? You tell me. First John 2, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. 1 John 4, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. John 3, he who believes in him is not judged, and he who does not believe has been judged already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. 1 John 2, whoever denies God the Son does not have God the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Hmm. God gives mankind the ability to hear and to understand first, first the very basic or elemental things which can be known about God. We talked about this almost exclusively last week about God's revelation of himself to every human being that comes into the world, regardless of where in the world they are born or what have you. In Romans chapter 1 in the New Testament, you can look at that again, or you can get that message that's right at our website online. 1 John 5 says, We know that the Son of God has come 
and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. And if the response of the individual to that preliminary information about God is received, God then gives more information and more understanding of who Jesus is and why he had come if anyone is to be saved. All this is to say is that everybody who comes into the world at any time in history enters this world on absolutely equal footing. Every human being born of Adam and Eve comes into this world already a sinner before we've ever sinned. That's just the way God designed it. Take it up with him. You say, well, that sounds really unfair. Adam and Eve were born sinless. They had the opportunity to have to sin before they became sinful. And how long did that work out for them? So let's just fantasize here for a moment and say, God says, okay, you know what? For you folks in here, I'm doing it differently. Let's start even right now. Forget about going all the way back to birth. From this day forward, your sins have been removed. Your original sin is gone. But here's what we're going to do. You will not become sinners until the moment you have your first sinful action, thought, or deed by omission or commission. Ready? Go! And let's say there's a buzzer attached to you every time you blow it. Be like that game operation, right? That annoying game operation. See, God in his wisdom knew that Leaving mankind to that complete, unsullied sinlessness in free will, leaving it up to us to live a life of perfection, was going to end up in a dismal way for all of us. So he said, instead, I'm writing you all off, and now I am going to come, and I am going to do, because he's a just God, he can't say, oh, I'm going to change the rules of the game here. So no, I still require perfection, but I now am going to be a human being in the person of Jesus, and I am going to submit myself to this same fallen, sinful, imperfect world that you have to live in, but I am going to come and do it, and I am going to do it perfectly, obeying my own demands of perfection every step of the way, and I am going to offer you that unsullied, perfect, pristine life as your very own to present to me, but you don't have to take it. If you don't take it, you're on your own. That is called the gospel, the euangelion, the good message. And that's why it's good, because it's a done deal. Yes, I want that. Lord, God, thank you. But because he's a holy and just God, he couldn't just say, oh, yeah, now about that issue of sin, though. No, the sin has to be punished. It's the way I designed it. The wages of sin is death. So I myself, even though I am perfect and I did not deserve to receive the punishment of sin upon myself, I too am going to go to the cross and I'm going to do that for you. And I will credit that also to you. So now when you get to heaven and you say, and God says, why should I let you in? 
say, because Jesus Christ is my righteousness and he has paid the penalty for my sins and God the Father has no choice that he put upon himself but to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Now enter your rest. And there is no ifs, ands, or buts, or doubts about that. First John chapter 5 says, These things have I, have, writ- have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Not that you might hope. Or that you have to take a, an intermediary stop off in purgatory and work who knows how many years or have so many prayers said for you and everything else, chiseling away your sins there until you're good enough to get into heaven. Not scriptural, not Bible. Jesus did it all, paid it all. And he offers it as a gift to everyone. You can take it or you can leave it. And that is why I love the the Hebrews is my book anyway. But Pastor Brent mentioned this morning in the communion service. Therefore, we can approach the throne of God with confidence. And that's why we can approach with confidence. Because as far as God is concerned... If you are a believer and a follower of Christ, and he knows if you're a poser or not, but if you are the real deal, then you are as perfect and sinless as Jesus, as God himself. And that's why your place in heaven is certain. I hope that clarifies all kinds of things. I've opened a bit of a fire hydrant today and threw that at you and all. I understand that. And I also understand if you, you know, like to th- one of those people who like to think a little deep, more deeply, you know, yeah, you know what, this, what I just said could be picked apart in about 10 seconds by saying, okay, you just made, though, many, many assertions about what is true and not true based on, first of all, who Jesus says he is and who this says he is, but also on what the Bible says. Who says the Bible is right? That's a great question. And that's why that's the sixth message in this series and the other one is hey that only works this only comes together if jesus was who he said he was and that's next week's message so if you feel like the 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 all the lines uh, haven't been connected they they haven't but you have heard more than enough right now to have your eternity absolutely secured and certain before the holy sin-hating god of heaven He will force nobody. He will force nobody. For love demands that you come of your own. It's not difficult to do. You can do it where you're seated. Right now, the Holy Spirit of God, I believe, is working on hearts in here this morning, because again, he desires that no one perish. And if your faith has just been boosted this morning, it's like, yeah, you know what? I've, I've always, I've always thought, I've always believed that, but boy, it's so much more clear now. Just thank him right now. And you're just, thank you. Thank you, dear God, for clarifying this. Thank you for what you've given me. And if you're not there, say God in heaven, I do want that gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. That's all you got to do. Tell them that. That's it. Tell them that. But I would encourage you strongly that if you do that this morning to tell somebody very soon. Say, why? 
Because one, it will strengthen you by doing so. And it also sends word to the kingdom of darkness that is not happy when anybody gives their life to Christ. Because that's one less that will be with him in eternal perdition. Let me have you stand. Lord in heaven, you know every person in here. You've known them before they were born. You know the beginning from the end for you are outside of it all. I pray, Father, strip away sheaths off hardened hearts, tear away blinders, unstop deaf ears, and through the power of your Holy Spirit now give that gift of faith to believe and to receive to the glory of your name, to the eternal glories of all who have done so. In your great name we give thanks. Amen.